It's a lot like, you know, the story of the person who comes to a village and creates stone soup. He just drops this rock in the pot and says, this is going to be the most amazing soup. And that's because of the vision that he holds and he communicates to people in an effective way that connects them to that vision. Not only is he sharing the vision, he's bringing them in, he's drawing them into the story. He is able to, he or she is able to have them be a part of that narrative. That's what we were able to do at Lohas. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. Today, we dive deep into hat number six, the hat of the philanthropist the contribution hat, and hat number four, the hat of the entrepreneur. As I interview my guest, Ted Ning, known for putting LOHAS, the acronym for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability, on the map. Let's ride the entrepreneurial roller coaster together as Ted takes the LOHAS brand and LOHAS conference from an obscure concept into a global movement of change. We will find out why Ted burnt out at the top of his game how he lost it all and then got back on the roller coaster with his new ventures, Yuzen, the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, and now the CMO Forum for Naturals, where Ted works with some of the most prominent CPG brands to facilitate real change. Ted is a philanthropist. He's a shift changer, thought leader, executive, and above all, he's one of us, a passionate entrepreneur who yearns to impact the world. Gold nuggets abound for all you social entrepreneurs, so let's dive right in. Welcome to the Seven Hats. I am so excited to speak with you. I've been so passionate about the healthy living and sustainability lifestyle for many, many years now. And you've been my hero because you're known for championing this cause for most of your life. I'm sure the Seven Hatters are eager to learn about the man behind the movement and the stories and lessons learned along the way. Shall we begin? Sure, shall. Thank you so much, Yuval. Really appreciate you being here and, and inviting me on this podcast. Of course. Thank you. So let's start with your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up and how much of an influence did it have on your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. Well, um, I grew up in Colorado in the mountains in a little town called Evergreen and um, was surrounded by nature. So that was a big impact impression on me, wandering the woods and having to walk what seemed like forever to get to the bus stop as a kid or to a friend's house. But also, you know, being able to go out in my backyard and be with one with, with animals, with the wind, with the weather, with the trees. So that was something that I continue to find my meditation with, and it's just had a huge impact on me there. So that was big living here, living, and I still am in Colorado. I, I have journeyed beyond the borders of Colorado and lived in a variety of different places. I lived overseas in Asia, and uh, that I'm a half Chinese, so that was also a, a big piece of my upbringing, and that had a big impact on who I am now and who I thought I was going to be when I was growing up. And it's been uh, a wild journey in terms of being able to actually tie a lot of those threads of origins together in a unique way that makes up myself and kind of my outlook for life. So when growing up, did you ever dream of becoming an entrepreneur? Was that the dream for you? No, not at all. I, <laughs> I wanted to be, well, first of all, I, I, I've had several iterations of when I grow up, I want to be fill in the blank here. So um, when I was younger, I even though I was in the woods, I was always attracted to the ocean. 
whales and sharks and just every every time there's a nature show on or this discovery channel has a, a, or there's a new special on netflix about oceans i can just they hypnotize me i look like you know, my, my mouth is a gape and i'm just like staring at the screen forever um so i wanted to be an oceanographer that's what i was thinking i would be then i got into skiing and uh, competitive skiing and i wanted to be an olympic athlete and unfortunately my body just couldn't handle it all my friends were aspiring as well and they all made it they made it to the world cup team and even the olympic team and even were the world champion the gold medalists of the olympic team so i was hanging with a pretty tough crowd pretty competitive crowd but my body just wouldn't allow it and at the same time while i was really focused and it was just, you know i'm coming from a little small town in the woods I was fortunate at a very young age to go to China with my father to visit family. And this was when nobody went to, to Asia, or let alone China. And that was really eye-opening in terms of saying, wow, there are a lot of people in the world that are very different than me, have different values, different languages, different outlooks. And not only did we go to China, but then instead of coming back the way we came, we took the, from China, we took the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Europe, and that was beyond eye-opening, going through Mongolia, going through the USSR at that time, East Germany, all of Eastern Europe, um, seeing all of those things that were, you know, during the Cold War were these, these objects and images in our subconscious of what we were being told was, you know, the bad guys, the enemies, and seeing behind the, the curtain there. Uh, and then coming back to a small little town and people were saying, so, hey, you want to go ski? It just kind of is a little bit, it, it throws your mind a little bit. So when did you start really considering entrepreneurship? Yeah, I've always had a little bit of a, of an inkling for that. You know, even if it wasn't on a big scale, it was, it was something like, hey, we can, let's try to do something that's an opportunity. Maybe the first times that, that I I didn't connect business and, and ideas together. I just connected ideas as like, this would be fun. Uh, when I was in college, like my body wasn't holding up as a, as a competitive skier. So I became a, a ski coach. It's like, oh, I think I'm, uh, that's good. I like teaching. And from that, I created the first university freestyle mogul program ever in the country. That grew to be the free ride program that has won several national titles and such. And then from that, uh, I was fortunate enough from a coaching career to be recruited to the Japanese team for the 1998 Nagano Olympics ski team on the Japanese team side. Being there, being one of the only foreigners in Nagano at the time, I saw tremendous opportunities of, well, where are people going to stay? Do people know how to get around? And so I established homes and uh, different kinds of tours and, and setups for different companies uh, that were all coming for the Olympics. So that was, that was maybe my first really solid time. And then from there, it just went on and on and on to, to different things that worked and things that didn't work, but they were all ideas initially. Well, I love that. And I think this takes me to the next segment, which is the roller coaster ride. So you decided to become an entrepreneur. You had your ideas and you wanted to materialize them. And there was a quote that you put out. Uh, you said, quote, I consider myself burnt wood and have the scars of experience to prove it. I've learned how important details, planning and grit are for taking on challenges that initially appear unsurmountable only to overcome, grow and develop from their teachings. So let's delve into some of those scars. You bet. I got the bandages all ready to unwind. I first heard of you at Lojas 10. Uh, that's where I launched my CPG brand, Luvala. You instantly became this mythical hero to me because I was watching you on stage. I, I read so much about you and I thought you were just doing the coolest thing. Who came up with the acronym? What is the meaning? What is the movement? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So um, when I came back from Japan, I came back and I was like, what, what am I going to do? So I joined a dot com that turned out to be a dot, a dot bomb, trying to figure out different things. I tried selling insurance. I learned that's not what I want to do. I was miserable and answered an ad in the paper for this company called Gaim and Conscious Media. And they're looking for someone to help with this event that they're putting on called LOHAS. LOHAS is an acronym for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. 
And it is a market identifier or a psychographic identifier of the conscious consumer who wants to buy products and services in line with their personal values rather than a price point value. And so with that, that alignment, they are willing to spend up to between 13 and 19% over conventional price and are willing to spend that out of pocket. You know, for example, it's acupuncture and chiropractic therapies. It's uh, shopping at Whole Foods or uh, at a boutique grocery store. It's buying eco products, renewable energy, green building materials, Teslas and other EVs, ecotourism that's impact driven, things that are values aligned. And uh, these people are the early adopters of up and coming trends. They don't stop. You know, if you look back in history, you can say, for example, with light bulbs, oh, okay. CFLs were all the rage 10, 15 years ago. Well, those aren't all the rage anymore. Those have since been like, oh my God, what are we doing with these? So next is LED. And as they are looking for new innovations, the demand is pushing for these things, as well as um, companies recognizing that if we do these things, we're going to be able to make business and we have a, a demand, a customer demand that's, that's doing this. So they're always on the tip of the spear when it comes to early adoption of new products in this category. And so a lot of people really want to know who these people are and how to connect with them. And so I um, I was recruited to be part of this group to put on this event that brings all of these different people together that are business leaders from all different market sectors. So it can be ranging from consumer packaged goods to green building to apparel to socially responsible investing to health and wellness to ecotourism to social impact investing to social justice and activism. Um, I kind of just answered and the paper initially. And then um, within this world of conscious meeting and uh, Gaim, I was given free reign to do a lot of what I wanted and able to craft the ambiance and the ethos of this conference. And, and so I did that for 10 years and was able to have amazing speakers come in, ranging from you know the late Ray Anderson or scientists like Paul Stamets, who focuses on mushrooms and and then we had like BMW and, and Ford or Coca-Cola or Ben and Jerry's were, were sponsors and such. And there was a celebrity aspect to it. And with that, I did that for about 10 years and, and grew a robust network of people around the world. But I, you know, I, I wasn't sure, you know, they had these amazing people around me, but I, I felt like I was, you know, I was just an event guy. I was just, you know, putting pieces in place and such. And I felt like I was beneath them a lot of times because I didn't have the chops to do what they were doing. You know, you have these renowned CEOs of, you know, New Belgium Brewery or um, what have you. And I carried that a lot. I carried that that imposter syndrome a, a long time. From that, um, I said, you know, what? I want to I want to know what to do more of and how, how do I do this? But um, I think because I carried that, I, you know, everybody creates their reality. Everybody creates what they see. And so my next role was uh, running an innovation group out of Minnesota for large multinational corporations. Their different innovation teams would come together and solve innovation challenges. And uh, that didn't work out so well. It was every year, um, you know, was able to grow it, but nonetheless, the, the founder and myself didn't, didn't work very well. And then from that, um, you know, just was, was wandering a little bit with what to do. I didn't have anything that really stuck. So, so let's, let's get back for a second to Lohas, because you mentioned imposter syndrome. I think we all as entrepreneurs have it. Ultimately, entrepreneurs look up to celebrities and masters of enterprise, and they feel they have it all. Meanwhile, they don't understand that they have imposter syndrome. They have doubts. They have issues. So young entrepreneurs are not any different than experienced entrepreneurs, except for the experience. So tell us in the early days, because Gaia asked you to, to lead this movement. And so you were part of creating a buzz, creating excitement, bringing in leaders. It wasn't easy in the beginning when no one knew who you were. So what were the struggles? With Lojas itself, I was brought on as kind of like a, the last guy on the totem pole. With Lojas itself, there was somebody else who was supposed to be running it, but they came in and they had no concept of what to do. Um, they had ideas. They were an idea creator. They came out of entertainment industry. And it was like, they would come in from LA and, and they'd say, Oh, we're going to do this, 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 and invite these people and have these celebrity speakers. 
and do all of these, you know, whiteboard brainstorming all over the walls of images and graphs and names. And then they'd leave and then they'd come back again and like, no, 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 we're going to do this, 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 scratch all that. We're going to do this, 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 this. And just that was something that kept going and going and going. I recognize like there are certain things that are needed and then there are certain things that people have skill on. And it's very important that those two match early. The, the biggest thing that I think I came away with in, in looking at it is is really it was establishing connection with people. And that's really leadership is connection because leadership is all about influence. And if you don't have connection, then you can't have influence. And so that was something that I learned as I just grew my network. So how did you grow your network initially, right? Because when you're starting out and you're calling on people, and this happens to every entrepreneur, right? When they start, they're calling on people, people are not returning your calls. And so what was the mindset to get through that? Because I met you at Lojas 10, where Steve Case, the founder of AOL, top industry leaders, uh, Bill Ford was there. You didn't, you couldn't get these people in the early days. So for entrepreneurs out there, what kind of mindset must they have to get from where you started to being able to attract these types of individuals? Well, I think it's surrounding people with people who are a level up than where you're at, or even a level two, level three. And those are the people, it takes time. The entrepreneurs are very impatient. You know, we all are, we all want it done yesterday. But whatever is really, it takes discipline and, and it takes uh, patience to, to do these things. And so what I did is I connected with people who knew them and then learned that if this is an event that could be very beneficial to the person who I connected to then say, hey, I would like this, you know, Steve Case to then attend this and and present based on what his interests are, because I didn't really know what they are, or at least I could hear them secondhand, then it gives them a more reason to introduce. And furthermore, it also gives a platform for Steve Case, for example, to talk about what he's doing on what that means to each person. So again, it goes back to influence. It goes back to the person who I'm in contact with, how close of a relationship they have to these other people, which were just fortunate. You know, I didn't really know that these people knew each other at these times, but they're like, oh yeah, you happen to know Steve Case? Yeah. Oh, he's interested because he's creating this new wellness program. Would you like him to speak? Like, that would be, yeah, let me think about that. Yes, you know. Uh, and um, it, it grows from there. It grows from then once you establish that, then you start getting a rhythm. And it's, it's a lot like, you know, the story of the person who comes to a village and create stone soup. He just drops this rock in the pot and says, this is going to be the most amazing soup. And that's because of the vision that he holds. And he communicates to people in an effective way that connects them to that vision. Not only is he sharing the vision, he's bringing them in. He's drawing them into the story. He is able to, he or she is able to have them be a part of that narrative. That's what we were able to do at Lojas. You've heard of the Dream 100, I'm assuming. And basically what that is for entrepreneurs Russell Brunson, another one of my, my mentors, speaks about it all the time. Basically, what you do is when you start a project, for instance, a podcast or a business, don't try to go after the individual customers because it would take you forever to get to all your customers, especially if you want to scale. What you want to do is you want to go and find out where they congregate and meet up with those that serve that community. And the reason why it's a Dream 100 is because there are going to be different levels, as you stated. And that's what made me think of this, right? You have A, B, C, D level influencers out there. If I want to go and get Gary Vee on my show, good luck. It's not going to happen. He can still be in my Dream 100 or Russell Brunson, for example. He would be kind of an A Dream 100 guest. But in order to get to him, you got to interview and hang out and spend time with those that potentially will know them in the future. And they'll make that connection. You'll get more established. And you also reach your community, which gives you a platform. And the bigger the platform that you have, the more interesting you will become to those individuals that you thought would never speak with you or purchase your product or whatever it might be. You're right. I mean, I think that's how you got to Lojas 10, where you had absolutely fantastic speakers, amazing individuals that you had to get to eventually. And that grit and ongoing determination to succeed without quitting, I think is the key. Would you, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, I was my, you know, the pedal of the metal 
you know, there's no two days that are sane when you're an entrepreneur. That's, that's just how it is. To your point, uh, in terms of like being where people congregate, my calendar was booked at all these different events to go to. And um, the, the nice thing, a little, little inside secret is if you're in events, you know, I could trade passes. I'd say, hey, you can come to my event if I can go to your event. And so I was able to, you know, kind of hack these things going to Expo or the fact that I had a blog and a newsletter at the time, too. I get press passes um, going to, you know, a spa conference or the Green Build conference or these different areas that, that I could then connect with people who were in the industry, get a sense of what was going on in that particular market vertical, who the leaders are and establish a relationship with them. And so then I was able to then pull those people together. So yes, definitely agree with that. And it's the roller coaster, right? Because you started off and you were probably beating your head against the wall and probably very frustrated and your family and friends heard about it. And then you gained momentum and you succeeded into a a worldwide organization. You've done your job. You were, in all sense of the word, a successful entrepreneur. But then 11 years ago in 2014, the doors closed. Why do you think that is? I was exhausted, number one. You know, I, I knew, actually, I woke up at one of the events. I think it was in 2012 at the conference that I was a part of. It was getting really expensive. You know, I was being at the office until two in the morning, trying to get all these things. It was not working smarter. I was working harder. I woke up and I said, I'm done at the event. I just was saying, I could remember very vividly, like waking up and going, I think I'm done. But I hung on for two more years. At that time, too, my inclination was like my gut was telling me like, no, it's it's time to go. And then the next two years, just the conference itself, the numbers weren't working right. Sponsors were declining. This was also just post uh, 08. So the recession was setting in. So sponsorship dollars were drying up. People's budgets were getting tighter and the space was getting more crowded. And I wasn't in a place where I was feeling like, okay, I need, I need to be innovative and do this. I was just exhausted. And also I was like, you know what, what is it like for me to be out there doing the hard work in the ring like an entrepreneur does when I wasn't feeling like I was an entrepreneur, I was an event planner. I don't know. My classification internally was different. So I, then I just said, you know, I think I'm done. That was that. And so no one stepped in. So you were done, closed the doors and everybody's like, okay, we're, we're good. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Wow. So so people like Elon Musk and others say that the brain can't distinguish between a death of a company and a death of a loved one. Was that true to you when you pulled the plug? And if so, how did you deal with the loss? Yeah. When it's a company, it's hard. It's it was yeah, that was my identity. I was quote unquote Mr. Lojas. You know, I was the go-to person where people would call me and invite me to be a keynote at a present, you know, at a conference. And it was challenging to let, it was really hard from an identity standpoint. It was, it was really, really hard. But at the same time, I wanted something different for myself. My wife and I, we created, you know, we, we started another enterprise. And so I threw myself into that, a subscription box for natural organic spa products. And then I got into like the real fundamentals of like online e-com kinds of things. And and that was trying too. I was trying on a marriage too <laughs> as well. What toll did it take on your family? And and we're not gonna go too deep into like that's another show in terms of how to deal with relationships, but but what what kind of toll did it take? Because you you ended Lojas, then you started another project, and that project again began the ups and downs because you started another project as an entrepreneur. So tell me a little bit about that time frame in your life. Well, I, you know, it was during the subscription box craze and I could see there was an opportunity uh, for us. I was like, oh, I could do this. I saw one for like natural foods and I was like, I could do that, but we just need to find a white space. So we did it for uh, natural and organic spa personal care products. Like, so you get this beautiful box. And you have your home spa experience, you know, close the door of the bathroom, turn the bath on, get a glass of wine out, open your spa box. And that's what that's what it was called. And then we also used our Japanese experience of being, you know, living over there and, and named it a Japanese term, Yuzen, 
which is the art of making kimono and, and attentiveness to detail and just the the beauty that the Japanese kimonos have. And, and so, yeah, it started in the living room, packing boxes and started, then went to the garage and then it went to a, a storage unit. And then it was two storage units and three storage units. And then it was outsourced. And the reason why I thought it would be good is because I had these contacts from Lojas. I knew who the products, you know, the companies, I knew some of these different shipping companies and such, or I knew people who knew how that, you know, so I could get some help there. But that, you know, you just have these concepts. They're not specifics. <laughs> and there, and that's that was very challenging for my wife, who, you know, was working at uh, the university here in Boulder. So she was working as, you know, in the immigration foreign foreign students office, coming into an entrepreneurial situation with very, very different, very roller coaster. He does not, you know, she wants stability. She wants nine to five. She wants health insurance. She wants, you know, all these things that, that you know, a paycheck that's steady, that pays the bills. That was rough. That was really, really rough. And there's some times when you're like, um, are we going to be able to pay the bills today, this month or not? Do we have savings? And yeah, we drained some savings from things. And and it was it was really, really another roller coaster ride. But we were, you know, we learn and we we go one way and we crash into a wall and learn a little bit that way. And then we go the other way and crash into another wall over here. And, you know, gosh, now with technology, it's so much easier. And we learned so many things not to do. You know, what type of email system do you want to use? What type of CRM do you want to use? What's your platform for e-commerce? And and we did everything wrong. Everything wrong. You know, just packing. If I don't need to pack another box, I'll be fine. That's the I will be rejoiceful for that. Um, but we we had to do it all the hard way. Um, so we did that for about seven years. We won some awards and you know, a lot of great customer feedback on what we were doing, but she was exhausted. She was like, I am not cut out for this. We had a talk and she's like, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. Um, so I said, you know, that's okay. These things don't last forever. So we liquidated everything and um, she's moved on to do something that's her passion. She's doing Pilates training and I have moved into other roles uh, for, in terms of really learning like, okay, what, what are the operating systems, the business operating systems, not operations, but the business management operating systems that are out there that make people sane? Like there has to be something. So I've gotten really curious about what that means and have come across some that I think are really, really powerful and important. The lessons that you've learned through burning out, dealing with bringing your spouse into a business after burning out, having her burnout, in a sense. That's the gold, because how many Seven Hatters relate to your story? I have had the exact same story. You must have lived the exact life that I've lived, because if I don't have to pack another box again, I'd be a happy man. And my wife is still packing boxes for Luvala, but that roller coaster ride that I failed in a business, and then can I do another one? Can I start another one? Your spouse saying, Okay, honey, I'll support you. And, you know, they're saints. They really are saints because the mindset of an entrepreneur is so different than the mindset of almost anyone else. And just to support them for a long, sustained period of time is really difficult. So to all the spouses out there that are listening, kudos to you. I think that Ted will say the same because it's a difficult job. And thank you for supporting all of us because without you, without the spouses, we couldn't change the world. I can guarantee you, I would have given up many, many times if it wasn't for the support of Ala, my wife. And I'm sure Ted is the same. It's the same thing for you. So, box is done. Now you're moving on. You started thinking about concepts and about operations, but you also, again, led another brand which I feel close to, and that's the Bodhi Tree. What is the Bodhi Tree? The Bodhi Tree is the oldest spiritual bookstore in LA. And it was created actually by two engineers who in 1970 would come together and uh, study meditation. And this was just when Eastern religions were kind of becoming popular in the US. 
And their real uh, job was war games. They're developing rockets and, and maps. So then they just said, you know what? I think we're, we don't want to do this anymore. So then they um, opened a bookstore on Melrose. And from there, um, attracted all kinds of people, all kinds of celebrity who were having their existential crises and such. And so, um, and then also was a place where they would do readings or um, book signings of a lot of the renowned people in the personal development space. So, in fact, Shirley MacLaine, when um, if anyone's followed her at all, she had a book hit her on the head, and then she had kind of an epiphany of what to do with her or her life. That actually happened at the book, the Bodhi Tree, and you know, ranging from musicians like Michael Jackson to the Beatles to Elvis Presley to Diana Ross to David Bowie to Prince, um, you know, to John, to Jim Carrey to yeah, all kinds. Um, but it. Um, the, the bookstore had, um, just with the changes in L.A., it, it became less productive and profitable. And so it was sold to a patron. And that patron um, then wanted to take it online. And so then I was hired to be the person who takes it online. And um, it was because my head of PR for Lojas happened to be the head of PR for them. And it was one of those fortuitous, again, things comes across your way. And it was... Really, the second stint of a time of learning how to manage people and um, doing some soul searching for myself, and it was yeah, it was a roller coaster. It was again a crazy roller coaster. I mean, you couldn't find a better place to do some soul searching than Bodhi Tree. It was my favorite place to go to unwind and just escape. I mean, they had every spiritual book ever printed. It was in it's such a beautiful place. They had these warm teas that they would serve everyone. I just, I will never forget that place. And the fact that you were leading it for a bit. So let's talk about transformation. So you've had your successes. You've had your failures. You've been on the roller coaster ride. Your family's been on the roller coaster ride. Your friends have been on the roller coaster ride. But there was a shift, you know, since we're speaking about sustainability, since we're speaking about philanthropy in a sense, and you've been on the forefront, there was a shift from early adoption to mass. And it started in the food space, right? Farmer's Market, Mrs. Gooch's, if you remember, Whole Foods. And now every chain has a huge organic section, right? Costco and Walmart, Kroger's, huge organic areas in their store for, for beautiful food that you would normally just find at Whole Foods. It's not just food, it's electric cars and it's alternative energy. And there's so much more that's developing now. And it's really being adopted by the masses. Because you've had this experience, you've been in the forefront, you created a lot of these products. What do you think led to that rapid paradigm shift? And when do you think it started shifting, really, in your eyes? Europe brought the values of, of Calvinism to the U.S. And that, in the sense that I've got to work hard to save my spot in heaven. And, and then you've got um, kind of a backlash associated with that in terms of when that happened at that time, from a spiritual standpoint, there was always this, the priest was the conduit between heaven and, and the person and people. And in the seventies, you saw a challenge to that with Eastern philosophies and beliefs kind of inter being introduced to where that doesn't necessarily have to occur anymore. And that there's the land is not here for my taking. You see that a little bit, but you still see that in consumerism where, or big ag, where it's just like, it's very linear in, in, its design and our, our kind of whole supply chain and our waste streams and such, and, and just how we consume it. There's, there's more of a desire now to say, to question that. And I think, you know, you saw that in like the counterculture era of people experimenting with different options, the beginning of, of co-ops and, and organic farming and communal living and, experiments with religion and you know drugs for that matter and music and all that you're seeing now a resurgence of that um, in these next these newer generations and such new families and such you see that also with a lot of people who, who are new parents they're looking for the healthiest options and if they have the means they're going to look for things that don't have pesticides and don't have chemicals and don't off gas or, or anything like that around their newborns because of the education that they have about that. And, and so it's it's been around and now, particularly with COVID, 
You see that even more where people are worrying about health. So it may not be environmental, but they're more focused on internal health. And there's a blend between those two on what's good, as well as then what we're seeing in climate change. I mean, in Colorado last year, fires were horrendous. Right now, there's a heat, you know, it's 121 degrees in Canada this week. It's insane. You know, you've got buildings collapsing in Florida because of of negligence. And, and so, you know, you've got Black Lives Matter going, okay, this system is broken. We need to do something different. So there's a lot of things pointing at things that are that haven't been reorganized or have any innovation for a long time. It's just been the status quo. But there are uh, different companies, a tremendous amount of opportunities out there for entrepreneurs to disrupt that status quo. Yeah, which is really exciting. The, the earth is saying, wake up. We can't ignore it. There's absolutely no possible way to ignore it now. You know, it would have been nice if we were to do this 10 years ago when I was talking about it to people. And now it's, it's really, really important. And because of that, and because no one, you know, systems, governments, big business hasn't done these things, it's a tremendous opportunity for people who are entrepreneurs who are looking for those things. I'm looking for opportunities that are, that are values aligned and, and mission based. I love that. And that's why we have a dedicated hat for it, right? Because ultimately your contribution as an entrepreneur to the world is going to be the critical line in the sand that needs to be drawn from the old Madison Avenue mentality of you're not good enough, buy my stuff, create more stuff. And who cares about the earth and other people? We got to think a little bit more into how can we help others live a better life? And I think that's why I am so honored to know you and, and call you a friend. You've had a number of successes and a number of failures. I think everybody relates, but you've been doing this for a while. How did you change from that starry-eyed entrepreneur in the beginning when you first started thinking, I'm going to change the world, let me at it, to where you are today? It's all about personal growth. In personal growth, a lot of people may think that just happens. It doesn't just happen. You've got to work at it. Particularly if you're an entrepreneur and you, you're leading a team, a lot of people can be enamored by your vision and your passion and follow. But that doesn't make you a good leader. You have to listen. You have to understand your viewpoint is one viewpoint. It is not the viewpoint. And I've learned a long time ago not to believe everything I think. That's also good and bad. You know, sometimes I think the world is amazing. I am the man. Look at me. And then I've also realized like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. It's never going to get any better. And that's just the mental monkey that's just rolling around in my head, just taking my attention and my energy. I think it's really important as leaders, as entrepreneurs, to recognize your vision is only as good as how you lead others. You may have a vision, but are you in alignment with that vision wholeheartedly? One vision might be great, but are you authentic? Are you saying that vision to everyone? Or if someone's upsetting you, what are you saying when they're not in the room to others? How much of an, is a value of integrity important? Those are things that really stick out when you become a leader and then becoming a person of influence. Um, I've been that person. I've also seen that other people try to influence others in uh, for one reason or another, but then really get to know who they are uh, behind, you know, afterwards. And, and they don't line up for me. And if they don't line up, if they don't line up for me, I don't want to engage. I don't want to surround myself with people who are like that. I would rather be around people who are going to make me better, not going to pull me down. And that's really important to surround yourself with people who are who you're always striving to to be like. Uh, borrowing benefits from them is very important. You know, uh, any, everybody has a model. Everybody has a role model. Everybody has a model company they like. What are the benefits that you can borrow from them? And then step into those. How does it feel to be like that person? What does that person do on a daily basis? How do they think? What do they wake up in the morning thinking about? If I was them in this situation where there's conflict, how would they handle it? Those kinds of things are uh, things that I challenge myself with because I'm challenged constantly with tension points. We all are. But within those tension points are the opportunities to grow and expand and make ourselves better people. 
you mentioned not to believe everything I think. If you listen to my previous episode, I speak with Atma, my spiritual teacher, and we speak about the ego and we speak about humility and the fact that humility is one of the most difficult traits that an entrepreneur, a human being could undertake because it goes directly against their ego. And we want to believe that our vision is the right vision. We want to believe that our mission is the right mission. And we don't want to iterate on it necessarily because we feel like we're right. And the ego will then pursue that and will say, yep, you're right. And I think that you're spot on in what you're saying, because I think you're saying the exact same thing. And through that journey of yours, because my next question was, what's the biggest lesson that you can convey to the seven hatters that they can take away from all of your experience over the past few decades? I think of myself as very similar to a computer. And I think we all are in the way that a computer has an operating system. The operating system of 1995 was Windows 95. And now we're in 2021. So if you haven't updated your operating system, you're still working on Windows 95. Can you imagine that right now? Working on Windows 95, that? I think there's like one megabyte of RAM or whatever it was. And you were dealing with a 56, 58K modem and it was screechy and on a phone line. So people's mentality when it comes to Outlook is very similar. Every day that needs to be updated on where a person is at. And so constantly on a daily basis, disciplining someone to take stock in terms of where I'm at, where are they at, where are we at, is very, very important. So that you can be constantly aware of what's going on and that allows you to look around corners. What's going to happen tomorrow? How am I prepared if it goes this way or it goes that way? It might go that way. So what do we do? What does that bring about? Hmm, interesting. I haven't thought about that one. And if that does occur, what am I going to do? And then if that occurs, then what am I going to do? So in doing this, these exercises of of mental gymnastics, this allows one to update their internal operating system. And I think that's the key, is to constantly be working on that and figuring out the patches figuring out the updates on the various things that you might be be missing. And I come up across these constantly myself where um, I have a blind spot. I'm like, ooh, wow, that's challenging. I didn't think about that. I need to really remember that and carry that into the rest of my experiences moving forward. So I would suggest uh, for people uh, who don't think that's too cryptic, that that would be my advice. I love that. We always have especially with my companies and, and the culture that we set. We follow Tony Robbins' Kanai, constant and never-ending improvement. The one thing that we need to, I think, warn others who are always eager to learn and always look ahead to what they can do better, not to also feel bad about themselves in the current state. Because yes, you need to be better tomorrow. But today, if you're doing your best, you're good enough. And I think that understanding of today I'm doing my best, tomorrow I'm going to do better, then you iterate and you have that constant feedback loop coming your way. So you're literally becoming better every day, but not forgetting to enjoy the moment because that moment is so important. And a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, look to the future to try to find happiness, to try to find greatness, to try to think that they're going to uh, find some sort of magic bucket with gold at the end of the rainbow. There is no gold at the end of the rainbow. So I I love that. And I really thank you for that lesson because I think it's a great reminder for entrepreneurs. Get better every day. That's your goal. Yeah. Well, at the same time, I wouldn't, you got to think, celebrate the small wins. I mean, I remember even in skiing, competitive skiing, I would have just a crappy day all day, but maybe I would have two turns that I was like, Ooh, there it is. Same with surfing. It could be like just one wave, you know, just one of those things. And it's like, okay, there, okay. And then the next day, maybe it's three turns. Maybe it's next day. It's eight turns. Maybe the next day it's a run or maybe it goes back to two, but you just got to throw out everything else and just remember those two. And and that's what you got to focus on is these little, little steps. It's just, even if the rock goes back, you know, you're pushing it up the hill, and even though it falls back, at least you get like you can get get two more inches. Like, okay, yes, I felt it move, and and celebrate that so that that use that as fuel to the next day. 
I love that. So what are you doing now? Uh, it seems like you're consulting with companies, you're doing executive leadership, organizational strategy, management, marketing. You're also managing a group of CMOs, uh, helping them solve challenges in business. How did they get in? Tell everybody. Well, so I was at Bodhi Tree for a bit in LA. We took this store online and we were creating an e-learning program. Um, and then the new patron, or the new owner, who was um, a very wealthy person, just decided to go another direction and then just kind of close shop. So that was disappointing. But I learned a lot um, from that. Learned a tremendous amount. Um, came back to Colorado and um, put together with some friends an event on digital strategies for natural food companies. And from that, I, um, you know, said, so how are marketers staying on top of their game? And uh, recalling what I had done with innovation groups coming together, you know, solving their challenges, I had a model and, um, you know, realized that marketers really don't, you know, everyone's just trying to figure it out. No one really knows what's going on. They're just trying to do the best that they can. So I said, well, wouldn't it be great if we could come together and solve each other's challenges? And people said, yep. And that was three people at a restaurant. And then COVID came along and um, people were like, oh my God, we got to talk. And uh, provided this kind of community when community was just severed from a lot of people. And so I started hosting these Zoom calls with different marketers from natural food CPGs. And, uh, you know, sharing challenges and, and also like, you know, working from home and dealing with kids and dogs and managing a team remotely and all that. Um, it was just a very therapeutic time for folks. Um, and that has uh, that has grown now to from three people to 50 brands nationally. It's all brands that are 10 million plus in revenue. So we have brands like Suja, Country Archer, Lundberg Family Farms. We've got Justin's and Purely Elizabeth's and Yum Earth and Red's. It's, it's you know, you just go down the whole food aisle and you'll see anything. Rudy's Bakery and um, Lily's Sweets. It's been a lot of fun. So we meet once a month uh, for that. And then um, also just uh, in terms of my understanding of operating systems for companies, I've, uh, you know, continued to, to look at different things and I've really become enamored and a big fan of EOS, um, which is an acronym for Entrepreneurial Operating Systems and uh, or a book called Traction by Gino Wickman. Those are um, the concepts uh, fit very, very nicely. I would highly recommend anybody who's an entrepreneur who uh, is looking for ways to really understand how to get people in the right seats that are on the bus all pointed the right, right direction, going the right way. And then what data do you collect and what are the processes you put in place for folks? And um, what's the vision? What, how do you really cl clarify that and crystallize that? And what's a cadence in which you look at these things on a weekly basis, on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis to ensure that you're looking, you're seeing progress. You have a roadmap. I've been helping different companies just implement that process and, and be aware of that. So nonprofits as well. So those are my two things right now uh, that I've, have keeping me busy. And I'm quite happy with those things and continue to do my own personal growth and, and, and keep my lights on a little bit more than I was before. Yeah, it's, it, I'm more efficient now. I'm, I'm actually working less but uh, providing more. So working smarter, not harder, which is great. Well, you're a shift changer. You're a connector of people. I admire you uh, to the greatest of lengths. I'm going to put all the links in the show notes of this episode, but tell the seven hatters, how could they connect with you? Yeah, anyone can, if uh, they want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, that's great. Love uh, to connect there. And they can also reach out to me directly, my email at tedning at gmail. Those are my two ways, and hopefully we can uh, connect in person sometime. And if you're a seven hatter and you're a CMO or in, in an executive role at a CPG brand, connect with Ted. It would be the best decision you've ever made. Such a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and there were so many gold nuggets that I know the seven hatters can take with them and learn from. I appreciate the conversation. I hope to speak with you soon. Yeah, you all. I really appreciate the time and, and uh, thank you so much. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ted. Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. One of the key motivators for high achievers is contribution and philanthropy. So let's consider what a philanthropist is and what do they do? Well, philanthropy is about bettering other people's lives. And usually it's by donating money, time, talent, and experience. But at its core though, Philanthropy is about contribution. And if you have contribution in your heart, it's going to show up in whatever ways you can contribute in any given moment. So you never know when you get the call for service. For Ted, it was Lojas. And even though the conference closed its doors in 2014, the long-lasting worldwide effects were set in motion. For me, the journey into hat number six, the philanthropist, has just begun. And I'm looking forward to receiving my call for service as Ted did in 2003. New products and services created by us, the Seven Hatters, can produce a cascading effect where we stimulate sectors that support the contribution towards a better, more loving, healthier, peaceful, and thriving society. We owe a debt of gratitude to past visionaries who ignited the spark towards a better future for us, our kids, and our grandkids. I hope you join the mission and transform the spark into a raging worldwide fire of change as you continue to embark on your entrepreneurial journey with a philanthropic approach. The world needs you. The people need you. Your loved ones need you. So for now, I bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selig, and I tip my hat off to you. And one final note, If you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there the value that you got from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. I'd also love for you to weigh in on this topic. Join the Seven Hatters community on my website, thesevenhats.com, the number seven hats.com, so we can connect off-air.